We turn in our study this morning to the upper room discourse that occupies four chapters in John's gospel, the 13th through the 16th chapter. But we also include the 17th chapter as it is the high priestly prayer of our Lord. And these are the chapters we will think through over the next numerous months. This morning we come to the very familiar story of our Lord washing his disciples' feet. If you think about it, it is because of its familiarity, we especially need to depend on the Holy Spirit. In the upper room, the place we're studying in the Bible, Jesus speaks much about who the Holy Spirit and what his role in our lives is to be. And in one place, in one place Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Then he tells us that because he is the spirit of truth, he teaches us the truth. Our Lord then adds something that we need, and he reminds us of the truth. What this means in practical terms is that the Holy Spirit is always giving us new insights into the Word of God so that we grow both in our knowledge of the Word and in our living for the Lord. But there are also those times when truth is familiar to us and the Holy Spirit is able to come along and not simply remind us of what we've already been taught, but to fill what we've already been taught with fresh insights, where he can show us as we ponder the word new ways we can apply familiar truth. I labor this point this morning because for many of us who are familiar with the foot washing activity of Jesus, we ought to pray even now, O Holy Spirit, Give freshness to what is familiar to me and show me new ways I can live your truth for the glory of Jesus. And he most certainly will answer. I would like to read in your hearing, therefore, the familiar. John 13, verses 1 through 5. It was just before the Passover festival Jesus knew that the hour had come to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Let me just say in passing that we will look at the whole story this morning in terms of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. I will skip verses 6 through 11 because those verses are so weighty with significance, they deserve their own sermon in the very near future. But I want us to see three truths about the Lord Jesus. I want us to think about the saving love of Jesus. It's in the passage. I hope that we will think seriously and deeply and prayerfully about the uh, sovereign authority of Jesus. And against the backdrop of those two incredible truths, you have the central theme of the passage, which is the selfless humility of Jesus. That's the order of our thoughts for this morning. We think first of the saving love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at it Sunday last. It is a valuable verse, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Again, Jesus knew that the hour had come. This was the long-expected hour. It was the supreme hour in the life of Jesus, and therefore no other hour that has ever occurred in history is more significant than this hour. It was the hour when Jesus would go to the cross for the sins of humanity. It's interesting, in the very beginning of the Gospel of John, just before Jesus uh, performs his first miracle of turning water into wine, he says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. Then you go to the very end of the Gospel, where our Lord is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And it was not the will of the Father to take the cup away from his Son, the cup of wrath that he must drink for us. But when Jesus comes back to his disciples, he looks at them and says, my hour has now come. And the very next thing that happens is that Jesus is betrayed, arrested, tried, and crucified. So the ultimate hour, the expected hour, is that moment in history when he would die a sacrificial death, whereby he would take our sin upon himself and he gets the wrath and we get the grace. That hour has come. And when he's talking about that hour, we are told by John, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
It's a word that can be easily translated. He loved them to the uttermost degree. He loved them with the full capacity of his love. He loved them on the cross. You recall in the book of Revelation, we read a doxology of praise to Jesus, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his own blood. So Jesus would love his own to the end of his own life, filled with pain and agony and the cross and sin bearing. And he would love them through to the end of their lives when he would bring them into glory. The whole reason the Lord Jesus came into this world was to die for your sins and mine. To come to that supreme hour of sin-bearing crucifixion for his own. And Jesus in the upper room knows that. He knew that the hour had come. The shadows of the cross are consuming Jesus. And that brings us to the second thing he knew. He knew he was God. He knew he was the almighty, all-knowing Lord. And hence we see Jesus' sovereign authority. Look closely at verses 2 and 3. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. The Lord Jesus is conscious of the fact that the enemy of humanity is active in the life of one of his own. He knew that Judas had been uh, lied to by Satan and that Satan had so filled and moved in Judas's soul that he was inclined to betray Jesus. Jesus also knew at that supreme hour, he possessed total power from God the Father. That the power of God was upon him. It is always necessary for us to remember that when Jesus went to the cross, he did not go to the cross as an unwilling victim. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus said, I have the authority to lay down my life. And I have the authority to take it up again. No one takes it from me. And that I have received this authority from my Father. And here in the upper room, knowing that Satan was at work in the hearts of one of his own, to betray him. Jesus possessed omniscience. He knew he had power. 
There is an interesting verse at the end of John chapter 2 where it simply says, Jesus knew what was in the hearts of all men. He needed no one to tell him the thoughts and the intentions of people. For he possesses total knowledge. He is the Lord God omniscient. But here we're also told that total authority and power is available to him. He does not have a withered arm. Jesus is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we are willing to contribute to his capacity to do. So not only is he the Lord omniscient, as he is called in Revelation, he is the Lord God omnipotent, who reigns in supremacy. And it is this Lord, this sovereign one, this holy one, this almighty and all-knowing God, what is his next activity? Well, verse 4 tells us, So he got up from the meal. This mighty king of glory and grace. He got up from the meal, laying aside his outer garments, tying around his waist a large towel, and taking a basin filled with water. He washed the feet of his disciples. The one with saving love, the one who has supreme authority and power available to him, gets up and commits an act of selfless, humble service. So let's think about Jesus' selfless humility. It was commonplace in the ancient world for people to walk and travel dusty roads. These roads were actually filthy roads for the simple reason that not only did humans travel these roads, but they often did so with their own animals, making the dusty roads filthy. And it happened every single day, a servant would take a towel and a basin and wash the dirty, smelly, grimy feet of a guest. Well, in the upper room, there was no servant on duty. No disciple volunteered to wash the feet of the others, though that would have been appropriate. They simply sat there. And that's when Jesus got up. And if you think about it in terms of movement, Jesus got up so he could go down. He stood tall and dressed in the garb of a servant so he could go low and bow at the feet of humans. And if you know anything about Jesus, and if you really think about this just for a moment, Jesus never did anything halfway. 24 feet in that room, covered in dirt 
and grime and filth. And the Lord Jesus takes each one of them into his hands. And he looks and he pours water over and he thoroughly washes all around. Dare I say, even washing between the toes where dirt has become encrusted. I'm trying to get us to visualize this. This was the humbling act of service Jesus was willing to perform. I wonder how long it would take to wash 24 feet in the upper room. Well, that's what Jesus did. And by his example, he teaches us that it is our calling to go low. And to prove that, let's think about what Jesus actually said about what he did. And in verse 12, we read, When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus begins the explanation of his action of washing feet with a question. It is a profound question. Do you understand what I have done for you? That's the sort of question all of us need to step back from and look at it and think about it seriously and deeply and then pray over it. But that is especially true of the disciples in that upper room. And you know why? Because a few days earlier, before they arrive in Jerusalem and go into that upper room, these very disciples got in an argument. Especially John and James, the sons of Zebedee, who were wanting the place of first in the kingdom of God. They wanted to be known as the greatest in the kingdom of God. So they got in an argument about who's the greatest. And it says the other ten became indignant. So this is really an argument. They're vying for first place. And Jesus addresses them. And when they are quiet, listen to what Jesus says. Verily I say unto you, he who would be first must be the slave of all, and he who wishes to be great in the kingdom of God must serve all. 
If you were to stop for a moment, and I don't necessarily recommend that you do this, but look around. A servant of all of them. You know, there is a man in the New Testament, and his name is found in 3 John verse 9. He was causing much trouble in the church he belonged to. His name was Diotrephes, and the epithet over his life read this who loves to be first. Diotrephes, who loves to be first. Can you imagine that statement being read Sunday after Sunday for over 2,000 years? He wanted to be the great one. He wanted to be the one known for zeal for the Lord. He wanted to be in charge. He coveted the accolades. And then right after that, there's another man whose name is Demetrius, who was a godly example and a faithful servant. How dangerous it is for us to covet the servicehood of others to us, to want to be seen and known as the first, as the greatest. So when Jesus says to those particular disciples, do you understand what I have done? I can only imagine it's true that after seeing Jesus perform the menial task, and after hearing Jesus say, if you want to be great, you've got to be the servant. You understand what I just did for you? I just gave you an example of what I taught you when you were arguing about which one of you are the greatest. And then Jesus says this, if I am your master, you will do what I have done for you. Actually, it's more than that. Jesus said, let me quote it for you, you call me teacher and Lord, and so I am. If I, your Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you should wash each other's feet. Did you hear Jesus reverse it? You say, you call me teacher and Lord, rightly so. But then he changes it. But if I, your Lord, and teacher. Now, it just could be saying it a different way and leave it at that. But if you think about it, it's an interesting little tweak. If I, your Lord, and if I am the Lord, I have the right to command your life, and you must settle on the fact before I even issue a command, you will do what I say. Because I'm the Lord. And so when the Lord teaches you, and when the Lord teaches me, we do not have the right to decide if we will embrace his teaching and carry it out. It must be done. 
because he's the Lord. And he is saying, I have served you. I have stood up that I may bow down. I have gotten up that I may go low. And you are to do the same thing. In fact, it is right for us to take it this way because one of the men who had their feet washed by Jesus that day was Peter. And at the end of his first epistle, Peter says, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. You look up that verb in a Greek lexicon, clothe. Behind it is the idea of a servant clothing himself, tying about his waist a towel. And Peter is moving that image to the realm of humble service by saying, like Jesus did, clothe yourself. Wrap around you a, t a towel that you may humbly serve all of your brothers and sisters in Christ. A significant number of you will say to yourselves, not out loud because you are extraordinarily kind, that this next illustration, at least for you, is worn out. I've told it so many times, but I really want us to remember what God wants to teach us. In 1978, 45 years ago, I was a freshman student at Columbia Bible College. I am convinced that in the Christian world, the most dangerous people are freshman students at a Bible college. Because you get to the end of that first semester and you have been drinking in the Bible and theology and all sorts of truth for 14 weeks. You think you can go home and straighten out your church. And I had a list of I'm going to get this right. And one of our professors called the entire freshman class into the chapel. He was standing behind a pulpit uh, that encased him, his whole self. And he told us, I know you want to go home. You want to share your ideas and what you've learned, and you want to help your church. But then he said this, Take your Bible home, you need to read it. But leave all of your syllabi and all of your books and all of your ideas in the dorm room. And then he reached under the pulpit and he pulled out a towel and a basin. And he said, take those home. Just ask your pastor one thing, how do you want me to serve? And do that. And we all remember that 45 years later. I've talked to some of my friends. As Mr. Braswell was teaching us 
You want to be great to your church. You want to make a difference. Stand up so you can bow low. Go up that you may go down at the feet of people and serve them. What's so significant, and I'll close with this, concerning Jesus doing this with his disciples is that Judas would leave, but the rest of them would be sent, listen closely, to be apostles, to be the foundation of the Christian church, to have legitimate rank. And he's still saying to them, regardless of your rank, go low. John Piper had an interesting sentence or two along these lines. I'd like to read it as I close. So yes, you have a high calling, but no, you are not qualified for it. If you need to hold on to the honors and the prerogatives of rank, the only people suitable to represent Jesus are the lowly, the humble, the servant-like, the self-denying. A couple of hours before the service, it just came into my mind and I looked it up to be sure. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place. Then he adds, but I also live with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. May God himself, for the glory of Jesus, turn us into a selflessly humble people who adopt a genuine attitude of servanthood. Shall we pray? Lord, there is very little need for us to talk about various ways we can humbly serve. There's so many. I don't ask that you give us a list of ways we can serve. I ask that you would give us a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit who continually points out the ways you are putting in our path. And help us to follow the example of the Lord Jesus. To be a people who are not puffed up with rank. But who get up that we might go low. For the glory of Jesus. And for the good of all the others. Amen.